Hey folks, I'm your loyal host, Joseph Noop, and as always, I'm glad you're here with me. So this week's episode features a talk with the creator and author of the Metro series, Dmitry Glochowski. If somehow you didn't know, the Metro games were inspired by the original books which Glochowski started writing when he was about 18 years old and published online in 2002. Since then, they've been turned into the offbeat but still quite popular first-person shooters Metro 2033, Metro Last Light, and the recent Metro Exodus, as well as translated into numerous different languages and turned into a sort of shared universe with more than 100 other books written by different authors. The series began exploring the same underground Moscow subway tunnels as the books, with the hero Artyom fighting for every inch of land against mutants and enemy humans. With Exodus, Artyom, his wife, his father-in-law, and a crew of intrepid soldiers end up fleeing from the metro on a giant steam locomotive, realizing that the world isn't as dead as they once thought, and finally expands the game series into a sort of semi-open world adventuring setting. I try to not say this terribly often, but I genuinely think this might have been one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever had. Not really because of anything I added, but to put it lightly, Dmitri is a very sincere, very Russian man who does not hold back how he feels about his country, international politics, and the relationship his books and the games they've spawned have with the world around them. I've really enjoyed the Metro games because they seem so unafraid to take things slowly and let you soak in the world that they're building. A lesser game, or a bigger budget one, would normally ferry you through set piece after set piece, very rarely allowing you to just kind of sit in place for a minute and maybe hold a conversation or see how people around you have been going on with their lives. If you haven't played it, I think you owe it to yourself to do that, even despite some of the jank the games are known for. I wrote a review on DailyDot.com that you can find pretty so yeah, I talked with Dimitri about all the topics I just mentioned, plus how he helped bring the games to life and feel authentically Metro alongside developer 4A Games. We talked about Russian politics, what the Metro series tries to say about his country and the world at large, and yes, we even talked about how he feels about authors being compensated for their universes, a topic I'm sure Witcher fans will appreciate. I can't wait for you guys to hear it, so let's get on with things. Make sure to support our resident musician at ZWBuckley.com, let us know what you thought of the show on Twitter at the 1099 podcast, and go play and read Metro. Here's the show. Hey folks, welcome once again to the 1099 podcast. Today I've got a very special guest, Dmitry Glukowski, uh, the author of the Metro series. And uh, Dmitry, as far as I'm aware, you had a really uh, uh, important role in helping bring the Metro games to life too. But first, how are you doing on this, uh, this sunny American morning and I assume a perfectly nice uh, Russian evening? <laughs> yeah, hello. Yeah, I'm doing perfectly well. There is a lot of things going on with the Metro thing right now, so uh, I'm pretty excited, excited following up all on, on all of it. Yeah. Well, uh, good news for you. Uh, you've got a new fan for the books. I actually shipped uh, Metro 2033 through Amazon uh, Prime, so I got it in two days. 
and I managed to leaf through a bit of it before I, I wasn't anticipating that because originally we were going to interview uh, a day ago and it was only going to arrive here at like noon my time but I have already dove into it and I'm really loving the books and today I really want to kind of understand where you come from as an author and what your inspiration for all the various aspects of the Metro series were and so first off tell me like I, I have no concept of what it must be like to live in Russia as a young person growing up there. So what, what was it like growing up in, in Moscow and Russia and what did what was life like as a kid? Well, you know, um, we, we have to split this experience into two parts because I was born back in the times of the Soviet Union and the uh, Soviet Union was a pretty peculiar world, you know, first of all whatever you saw about it did not quite match our own experience, especially as, as children. You know, so basically in the Soviet Union, you know pretty much nothing about the outside world. You know, the information is blocked, um, the Iron Curtain fell down years and years ago, like decades ago, and the information is filtered off. So you live in quite a safe environment, you don't have any street crime, you don't really have any consumerist culture, you don't have any competition, uh, everyone is pretty much equal to each other um, up to a certain moment when this system starts to go wrong, you know. So you don't have, of course, a lot of choice in the shops, in the stores, everyone is, everyone is wearing pretty much the same clothes, you know, people eat pretty much the same well, things and, and shit, um, and they live in a completely, um, let's say, hermetic world where there is a lot of mythology all around it. So we understand in this world that uh, the history has started more or less with the Great October Revolution and the revolution uh, led by Lenin as something that is the triumph of justice because the old world, the imperial Russia was completely unfair to simple people. They, they were completely oppressed and that was the triumph of justice that, that Lenin and his companions brought to us. Then the Second World War is not a world war actually in the Soviet Union, it's the Great Patriotic War where we were attacked by Germany, Nazi mm -hmm. Germany. We know nothing about Poland, we don't, we don't speak about the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, we don't speak as much about the American participation in the war, so we live in a complete feeling that we were attacked in that war by Germany and we were uh, the victims and then we uh, could resist and we won this war alone pretty much. Well, there were allies, but they dragged till the very last moment with opening up the second front, so screw them, uh, we won that war. That's it, our victory. And mm -hmm. we have a very certain vision of future. The future is we're going to build communism. And communism basically is a project where everyone will be you know, happy and uh, getting a just uh, part of what they deserve. You know, basically, we, we're supposed to bring the justice to the world. So we don't have this, this fetish of freedom, but we have the fetish of justice. And uh, the, the, what, what, what we were suffering for, what our fathers and grandfathers died for, and what we're not eating enough for is this project of making the world a better place. And we have this project of like establishing communism in the entire world. You know? And the West is always depicted as something greedy, selfish, and sometimes evil, not necessarily. But Americans are, of course, evil. They, they want to, to dominate the world through imperialist methods. And that's the vision that uh, we're getting since the very young age back in the times of Soviet Union. 
So a very peculiar world with communism instead of religion, you know, mm -hmm. the mummy of the great leader in the ritual pyramid in central Moscow, which is kind of very medieval or primeval, you know, and um, not a lot of information about what's going on in the outside world. So that's the environment in which I grew up, up until the age of 12. But closer to the end of this time, things started to go completely wrong, and then the economy started to, 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 to drown, basically, and the war in Afghanistan um, quite, uh, you know, exhausted the economy and people's moral and spirit as well. And by the end of the time of the Soviet Union, we saw huge waiting lines to get the most basic um, alimentation products, you know, sausage. I've been personally staying with my parents and my aunts and uncles from, from the province for, for sometimes for a day, you know, just in a waiting line. And they needed my hands because I would get like a stick of sausage extra mm -hmm. uh, because I was ma making the, the waiting line as well. And then just in 91, um, it was just all collapsing overnight. They told us, the people who ruled us for decades told us, you know, this project is over, go home. And we're like, what the fuck? And they, yeah, 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 there's got to be no more comedies. And we're like, wait a sec, what, we have, what have we suffered for? And they're like, yeah, yeah, forget it, forget it. Uh, we have other things to do. And things they had to do was actually to now like hysterically start stealing all the country's wealth and putting that into their pockets, you know. Mm -hmm. The entire first draft of the Russian elite, they were ex-communist leaders or ex-KGB people. Well, they're still in power. So basically the Soviet project collapsed overnight and people were left clueless. What to do next, you know? So there is no more vision of the past. Whatever we learned about our past is wrong, you know. Imperial Russia probably wasn't as bad. Lenin is, is a bloody, uh, you know, bloodsucker, and then Stalin is a man-eater, and uh, they have uh, just wasted dozens of millions of human lives for nothing. And then what we know about um, Second World War is not correct, because apparently uh, communists were as evil as Nazis, and they were, you know, just as mm, trigger-happy, and they were just as active in, in war crimes, but we didn't know about that. And apparently, and now we know nothing about our future because there is no more project for us. Basically, simple people were left to survive on their fucking own, you know, because people who ruled us were too busy stealing uh, whatever the country had, you know, the, the plants, the, the oil, the gas, the, the land, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So I grew up, like my adolescence, my teenage, ha like um, it was all happening in, in the times of... 90s, early 90s, where everything started to decay and collapse. So no more roads, no more pensions for the retired people, no more plans for future, no more street lights, you know, no more nothing. People were surviving the way they could. And all the old Soviet big monuments, you know, like, like statues of the Second World War heroes or Lenin and Stalin statues, or all these, you know, Soviet huge buildings like made after the Greek and Roman temples, it all started to decay, rot, and just, you know, crack down. So that was a, quite a hallucinating time. I was like surviving in a post-apocalyptic world, you know, 
we, we had a post-apocalyptic world, in fact, in, in the 90s. So this, this hermetic, self-sufficient, weird, but interesting world that we lived in just collapsed. And we were, uh, you know, crawling on the ruins of it, trying to reassemble some kind of hut out of the, you know, debris of, of, of the huge marble columns left from that ancient building, if you get the metaphor. So it seems like the like reading a little bit of the Metro book and then uh, playing. I played uh, Last Light and I've, I've almost finished Exodus. And even even in Exodus, where like the scope is expanded, it seems like there's this I, I, I'm starting to see everything you said in the game in the game particularly where you have a society of Russian people uh, living underground and they are more or less scraping by. They've, they've repurposed everything about the Metro, which as I like f uh, quaintly discovered was actually originally built as a bomb shelter. They've repurposed the, the Metro as this, this living space for themselves, but they still have this con like contentious relationship with the various uh, uh, government factions that ostensibly lead the place, like the Hansa, and then there's the the like weird neo-Nazi uh, subsects. So, is was that kind of what you were trying to communicate in a way? Is like here's here's one class of people uh, scraping by and and giving their bodies for the protection of of their families and their people, and here's this like higher up uh, sect of people who are kind of perverting that in a way. So uh, uh, the, these um, um, factions uh, that I'm describing, especially in Metro 2033 and in the uh, well, in the, in the book Metro 2035 and in the game Last Light, mm -hmm. these are well, let's say a parody to the actual factions that appeared in the Russian society after the end of the communist dominance. You know, like in the Soviet Union, there was just one political party, the communists. Everything else was banned. You know, and every other potential political faction was under very close surveillance or completely forbidden by KGB. So KGB was very active in controlling whatever political movement in the country and the church. Basically, up until now, all the main hierarchs of the Russian Orthodox Church, they are, <laughs> are alumni of, 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 uh, of the respect um, um, uh, of the corresponding uh, division of the KGB, you know, they, they have been formed to control uh, the, the church uh, in order to control the people, people's minds, you know. So, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union, what happened was that everything that was suppressed during the Soviet times started to spring up, and we, we, we discovered that we have a lot of homegrown Nazis that are huge fans of Adolf Hitler, that are tattooing themselves with swastikas all over, and that uh, dream about whatever, you know, exterminating Jews or exterminating Caucasians, like the Russian Caucasians, people from Caucasus, like Chechens and, and uh, Azerbaijanis and stuff. You know, and then all the communists, although that although uh, communism lo lost this battle, the communists didn't go anywhere because a lot of people still felt for communism. So we got, like in the 90s, we got uh, a lot of skinheads. Like it, it was like probably one of the most influential street culture, um, whatever group, you know, and then the communists were there, 
and of course all the religious cults you can imagine from Aung Shinrika, the, the, the Japanese suicidal sect that had a very powerful division in Russia to the, the Jehovah Witnesses, you know, that are now forbidden in Russia, but back at the time they were not, and a lot of other cults and sects, and they were, were all over the place, so total chaos, you know, and people were so fragmented. The nation that seemed to be one unified, solid thing actually broke into 1,000 parts. So what I'm describing in Metro 2033, both the video game and the book, and in the novel Metro 2035 is actually, and also you got it in the, in the Lost Light game, where you got all these factions, and the Nazis and the communists. And it seems like it's weird mm -hmm. or it's an exaggeration, but actually it's just a parody, um, a caricature description, you know, of what actually was happening in the Russian society, where it was a total chaos, a lot of different political parties and factions that were struggling for power and for people's minds. So I was basically describing uh, the, this chaos um, of the Russian life in the 90s. So it seems like, in a sense, on one hand, the world for Russia in the real world got larger. Some of the some of the veils were dropped, and and you you learned more about like the the international perception of Russia and different factions or or um, uh, just civilizations of people kind of began to filter into Russia more uh, or like more Russian thought. And then on the other hand, the world actually got smaller because in a sense, you're, you're rubbing shoulders with different kind of schools of thought now. And to me, that seems like that in, in a sense, that is what Metro, the, the big metaphor for Metro is, is here's the world got smaller for these survivors, but it's also forced them to, to rub shoulders with different factions who may or may not be just on the other side of that concrete wall uh, and have a completely different uh, view of the world and that either causes conflict or, or something else. I, I also noticed that in doing my research for this interview, you're, you're obviously very critical uh, of Russian culture. There's like elements that you, you clearly don't like about uh, fragile masculinity and, and that social identity aspect all the way to the top of the government. And despite that, critical nature i i notice the metro games have a like strong sense of uh, for lack of a better word like national pride it it feels like the more jingoistic characters like maybe colonel miller uh are are being balanced by the reality that like artium or anna kind of uh experience in their travels what do you think about that so i would say i would put it that way you know there is a great distinction in russia and i think that it works in america as well between the government and, and the nation, you know, between the, the regime and the people. So uh, between the country and, and, and the government who represent it, you know, especially since it doesn't represent actually anything, but it abuses the power and manipulates people in order to fake the support, you know, and they rig the elections, what's happening in Russia right now. So, you know, or they, they use propaganda to, to bring up nationalistic or chauvinist or imperialist moods in order to to assure the control of the country so i i love russia i am russian you know mm -hmm. i i do not try to be anything else uh of course as as many modern people i'm i'm i'm, I'm a being of a multifaceted um complex identity with different ethnicities in me um rather christian orthodox than not um 
but uh, definitely, you know, like lo loving your country and, and loving, ha having a great sympathy for your own people is one thing. And, um, you know, being aware of what the government is doing, what the regime is doing to manipulate and criticizing the political practices of the regime is the other thing, you know. So I'm totally, uh, definitely, I'm very patriotic uh, in terms of loving the country and wishing it good. And definitely I'm very critical of whatever uh, manipulations and propaganda tricks the regime is doing on people, making them dumb, you know, like bringing up um, imperialist feelings, trying to make them swallow the, the, the ongoing crisis in economy, blaming the West for every failure of their own, being basically a corrupt, you know, kind of a criminal-like organization that, that just abuses power in the country or turns the entire nation into their private corporation to extort money from, from natural resources. This is like two, two separate things. Now, speaking of characters, mm -hmm. Colonel, Colonel Miller is like in, in the, the book Metro 2035, and it continues um, into game Metro Exodus. He is one of those, you know, stuffed, you know, stuffed, you know, stiff military-like characters that firmly believe that there is us and there is them, you know, that mm -hmm. we have to fight against them, that, that their own purpose in life is struggle, war. It's like this phrase from Fallout, which I think is a lousy phrase, like war, war never changes, mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> like, what does it mean? It means nothing. That means shit, you know, humanity fucking never changes, take that, you know. We don't learn from the past mistakes. That's the big problem, you know. War is just a mean of, of instrument of, of, you know, clearing the relationships, questioning why humanity never fucking changes, you know. And, um, you know, Colonel Miller being a, like an officer of the special services is, of course, a super brainwashed person, you know. They have, all, all the military have a very serious professional deformation of, of, of psyche, just as Vladimir Putin has, you know. If you, if you serve your entire youth and you make your entire career in special services, then of course you're professionally paranoid and you only know that them, and this is the West, are, you know, the, the only thing they want to achieve is to, to, to put us on our knees and then, and then, then dissect us into pieces and then suck our oil and gas because that's what they need. You know, people just were born in the fucking 20th century paradigm and all they know is about a confrontation, mm -hmm. about real politic, you know, about us against them. And they don't understand that the modern world is, modern world is much more complex. And um, you, you can actually, ex, ex, you know, use soft power instead of use your fucking tanks and achieve way more. Like, look at Germany. What Hitler could not do, Angela Merkel did, you know. Germany is kind of controlling the entire Eastern Europe now without shedding a single, you know, tear of blood, you know, just buying and just, you know, inviting to the film festivals and just investing money. And that's a way better way of building an empire. So I'm totally with Angela there and definitely not with Adolf. So I'll ask you maybe one or two more questions about uh, the the books and then kind of the background before we dive into the the games sure. proper and your relationship with those. But I, I also read that you know you're you're not you've been invited to a couple of these uh, like artist parties where the Russian government kind of uses it as an opportunity to 
to like socially pressure you into not being as as critical or you know to toe the line in a sense and yet you say you're not really worried about that because in effect your books uh will admittedly never reach as many people as like a a high tier news program uh and you're kind of focused on recruiting people to a a sort of humanist club tell me about that are the are the games and the books kind of an extension of that wish yeah so uh, definitely yeah then i turned down politely all of these um, invitations to the, the Putin meets the writers or, or Medvedev, the, the former president, the interim president, meets the, the um, uh, artists, you know, or and also declined like the, the invitation to become a member of the Human Rights Council for the president because it's clear that uh, they don't know, do not, <laughs> you know, they, they don't do any human rights and on for culture also like I, I don't want to get close to power you know mm -hmm. I don't really want to I don't want them to tame me I don't want them to 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 feed me you know I don't want to depend on them I just want to stay as far as possible in order to keep my independent view on what's going on in there so totally um, um, as, as much as I can I, I I just wanted to keep the distance from them what was this the other question uh, just like rec recruiting people to the humanist club. Oh yeah, yeah, this thing. So you know, since 2014, when uh, what in, in 2012, Russia saw the the biggest mass demonstrations against Putin. Putin was like very much afraid of it, and they happened just beneath the walls of Kremlin. Mm -hmm. And then 2014, Ukrainian street revolution Maidan won a very similar thing against the Ukrainian abusing, uh, uh, I wouldn't say a tyrant, but like, let's say the, their president who wanted to become one. And uh, losing the country to the street revolution was Putin's greatest fear. So what he wanted to just, just juxtapose to it, you know, like the, his, his remedy for street revolution was to, to create a vague, um, no, um, um, how do you say, wait a sec, uh, was to create a wave, yeah, here we go. So Putin's, rem Putin's remedy to, to street revolution was to create a wave of uh, new Russian nationalism, you know, chauvinism and imperialism. So in order to, to, to stimulate the national pride and make Russians, you know, forget about their, their needs to become a freer, more modern nation, he, he actually dragged them back into the imperial past of the Soviet Union um, annexing Crimea and uh, driving Russians against Ukrainians, you know. So that was a time where, where there was a totally massive using and abusing of, of propaganda and hate speech towards the Ukrainian authorities and Russian TV. All of Russian talk shows were only dedicated to Ukraine. All of Russian news, completely faked, were dedicated to what's happening in Ukraine. And... Uh, it was like an unprecedented use of propaganda in the post-Soviet times just to completely brainwash the population. And 86% of the population were proved to be very susceptible and vulnerable to this, to this propaganda. So I saw my mission in trying at least to talk to the younger people, you know, arming them against this propaganda, telling them about how, like, metaphorically, um, how they're being manipulated and telling them my version of that story mm -hmm. that the government is trying to put them back into this nuclear shelter where, where they sat for um, 
the 50 years of the, of the Cold War, you know, um, telling them that there is no outside world, jam all the outside signals just as they did in the Soviet times with these radio jammers that killed off and silenced all the radio signals from BBC and the Voice of America. Simulate that there is no other world than Russia and say that the entire world is against us. You know, stimulate the psychology of, of a besieged fortress where you have to flock um, uh, around your leader and rally around the flag because everyone is against us. So I wrote the book, Metro 2035, that is a continuation of Lost Life and that is a foreword to Metro Exodus. So re if you really want to get into the story of Metro Exodus, what you really need to, to know um, is the story of Metro 2035. Mm -hmm. 35 is a story of discovery uh, made by Artyom of the existence of this outside world. It's the story of why actually people in the subway of Moscow don't know nothing about it and how Artyom is the only one to believe that there can be life outside and how he's struggling to find it and how he's like maybe apparently finding it and uh, discovering the, the conspiracy around that. Who is pretending that there is no world outside in Moscow, you know? So this all is the, 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 the backbone of the of this story of Metro 2035 and Metro Exodus is continuation of 35. So definitely after, after playing Exodus, <laughs> you guys need to go back to, um, uh, to the book Metro 2035. Yeah, it's uh, as duly noted, you know, it's only available on Amazon because I, I never went to conventional book publisher in America and I just self-published mm -hmm. it on, on Amazon. You know, hail Amazon for giving us indie authors this opportunity of just putting the text online and then making it available to whoever wants to, to read it. I, I did notice that. I uh, uh, I tried, I, I used to work at a Barnes and Noble bookstore here in uh, the Chicago area for about two and a half years. And I noticed that like it was on, it was listed on their store, but I had to go to Amazon to get it uh, as, as fast as I wanted. And it, it definitely feels like a, uh, it looks and feels like a self-published book uh, in that kind it of, is. That, that it kind of makes uh, it feel a little more special in my opinion. Thank you. Yeah, the thing is, you know, um, I, I try to publish it conventionally with American publishing. You know, Metro books are translated um, into, into 37 languages. It, mm -hmm. It's published all around, all around the world. You know, I found the versions in, in Thailand, in Thai language, and in Vietnamese, and Korean, all the East European languages, West European languages. It's quite a big hit in German and Poland. But for some reason, you know, at the same time, all the, all, every time I went to American publisher, like through the agent, whatever, they told us, nah, you know, like, we're not interested. And I'm like, wait a second, you're not interested? Like, this, this is, like, there is a video gaming franchise. I'm, mm -hmm. not, I'm not trying to, the agent was say, saying, they, we're not trying to sell you something that is, like, and has no proof of concept. There is a proof of concept, you know. But the American publishers would say, nah, this is not about America. This is too weird. This is too exotic. This is like we have another post-apocalyptic story on Slate. So I had never a chance to actually publish this book properly with a proper American publisher and, and get it to the American bookstores. For some reason, the only way, um, you know, for, for whatever, like it's the third big game and it's bigger than ever. 
and uh, the American publishers that just they just, just think for you guys that you know nobody gives shit about the stories that do, are not located in America, <laughs> which I think is completely wrong. You know, because I'm going to to the states like two three times a year. And I go East Coast and West Coast, and you know, for years I've been in negotiations about turning Metro 2033 into a movie in Los Angeles, like in Hollywood. And I know how people are open-minded. People are very curious, you know? And then I just don't understand the, the stubbornness of the publishing business executives who are completely convinced that they know everything about the tastes of the American public, of the American audience. It, it feels a lot like television uh, where you've got to meet some sort of arbitrary quote of like, well, we have to have a sassy gay character. We have to have a, a, a drama series, one young adult series. But it's funny you mentioned like the, the books have been translated into 37 languages. And also one of the, th the things I was most fascinated by uh, pe people will, of course, if they if they aren't as familiar with the series, they'll think that Metro Exodus is like the first time that the Metro uh, universe has kind of expanded beyond the the Moscow uh, subway system. But actually, you've you've effectively licensed the books out to like more than a hundred different uh, authors who've who've done their own stories in the same Mos in the same uh, metro universe but like in italy in the uk poland and like elsewhere in russia uh i think there was one like southern america or something like that and uh, cuba cuba Cu cuba yeah. yeah what was that like just a business move for you or do you have like hopes for the kinds of stories that they're telling because obviously there's a big different like cultural uh angle than what you could get in russia yeah no it was not a business decision well the only business part in it was that after I accomplished the book, Metro 2034, the second book in this trilogy, my publisher immediately started me to, to ask me for, for more. And I'm like, no, wait a second, I'm not prepared. I don't want to become J.K. Rowling or, yeah. or George Martin. I mean, financially, I don't mind, but I don't want to, to you know, like squeeze stories out of myself when I don't have them. I don't want to milk myself for something that I don't have. You know, like, I, I just like, when, when a story comes to me, then perfectly well, yeah, but it can take like five years or six years. You know, between the three Metro books, there are almost 10 years in their release dates and 20 years uh, between the moment when the first book was started and, 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 and now. You know, so really like two decades. And I, I don't want to rush, I don't want to precipitate, and I don't want to, you know, force myself uh, delivering, you know, a poor kind of, of a story that means nothing. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that every story that I'm writing has a theme, a topic. Mm -hmm. It is a story about something. It's a metaphor of something. If, if there is no um, other deeper layers, then it's not worth doing that. So um, the entire idea was not to rush it, um, not to rush it too much. But then the, the publishers told me, hey, like, give us something. And then by that time, I already had a lot of readers who wanted to join the project and who wanted to write their own stories set in the universe of Metro. So I basically just introduced the readers to the authors to the publisher, you know? And then I had to coordinate the project for a while, for like three years, when I was reading and editing every single book written in the story, in the series. And you're right, there are over 100, 100 books right now in the series set wherever, and they all, you know, set in the same coherent universe of Metro 2033. Not only in the subway or subways, but wherever. 
There is a story about a nuclear submarine, you know, in, in the ocean. There is a story of a huge roaming fortress made out of a quarry track in Italy, you know, which is like a kind of a fortress slash church. That's definitely uh, one I want to check out. I, I, I saw that uh, with the, the priest traveling with those fortresses, and I'm like, that sounds that sounds incredible. And that sounds an incredible idea for a video game, by the way. Exactly. As well. and I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. So, yeah, and, and other things, including the Cuban story, which is kind of, you know, it, it's just a, somehow metro, you know, unlike other stories that I wrote. It's just a project, or it's not. I don't like the word franchise because it's too commercial. Actually, mm -hmm. Metro is more of a project where where it just lives. It's, it's living a story of its own, and people just come in, wishing to contribute. And I'm just like, okay, guys, do that. Um, so of course I'm getting my royalties. They're getting their royalties. Everyone's happy, pretty much. Um, but it's nothing that I, like George Lucas creates as an empire it's not a fucking empire i don't even have an accountant you know or 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 <laughs> or, 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 or like or, or or pr agent you know things are just happening on, on itself you know i'm not a corporation unlike george lucas you know so metro metro is is kind of a thing that people just come and they want to join and they join and they do what they can so it's a better like you know, more more horizontal less vertical, more, you know, crowdsourced kind of a, a thing. And I, I'm very happy that years and years after the first book released, got released, it's still living and breathing. It's, 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 so, it's so good to know it, you know. And also, what's even better, that it kind of frees my hands, unties my hands, and lets me do whatever I want to do next. I'm not tied to Metro forever. Got a lot of other ideas and projects, theatrical plays, realistic novels, political columns that I'm dying to do, you know. And uh, Metro is just a, a creature that breathes and has its own life. You're like a you're like a, a Russian Tanahesi Coates. Uh, he he writes Black Panther, the comic books, uh, but he's also a, a, a political columnist and a, a, a kind of a nonfiction writer. So uh, I I did notice. Yeah, you've got uh, your latest. I think your latest novel is Text, which released back in 2017 and is being uh, translated in various languages. But uh, let let's talk about the games uh, before we uh, get close to wrapping up here. So. The one of the developers from 4A Games managed to stumble upon Metro 2033, uh, the book, and and reached out, and eventually that developed into a into a, a game, and thus the franchise was born. But tell me, like, uh, what? It's always curious to learn how involved uh, an original creator of a, a property is. So were you excited at the start? Uh, have you been like very intensely involved, or have you been kind of hands off? Yeah, so um, the story is the following. Andrew Prokhorov, who is the creative lead of 4A, Prof is his nickname, um, he actually just stumbled upon the, the book before the book got published. Just He found just the website, because before Metro 2033 even got published, it was like rejected by all the publishers I sent the manuscript to, because they didn't believe in it, so, or they didn't care to read it. So I just published myself on the, on the website, and I made it free for everybody to read, including apparently uh, Andrew, who just you know found it overnight and swallowed it. So I, but but 
he, he was also the creative lead of Stalker, this, this legendary Ukrainian video game. So um, I, I already saw some arts from it and screenshots and even some trailers. No, but maybe the trailers were not there. So I, anyway, I knew who they were mm -hmm. and I got super excited about this prospect because uh, we have exactly the same feeling for the post-apocalyptic beauties, you know, like, I mean, like for the beauty of post-apocalypse. So um, I, I got super excited about them, you know, turning to me and, and wishing to, 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 to um, translate my story into the language of the video games. So I, it immediately was a yes. Um, speaking about my participation in the, in the development of the first game, there was a very solid base for them. The book, they just took the book, they cut things that they could not afford uh, time-wise or effort-wise off. They kept the essence of it. And they turned it into a video game, then they sent me the entire dialogue of it, and I've edited it and, and rewrote it uh, for them, making sure that it all feels like living characters. So whatever, it, well, like, so my, my biggest probably participation there and responsibility was to make sure that every NPC has a voice and it doesn't really feel like NPC, but feels like real people. So a lot of emotional stories to tell, a lot of backstories, like dreams, hopes, doubts, complexes, you know, whatever. Um, and it was my, my biggest challenge in it, making sure that it all sounds literary enough, at the same time it makes sense, like emotionally. So... I, 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 I yeah, just, just to, to complete this thing, I, I'm kind of, excuse me, um, I'm kind of, you know, uh, treating like the usual way, the traditional way of depicting an NPC in a video game would be a little bit psychopathic. Mm -hmm. You know, psychopaths see other people not as equal beings, emotional beings, but as, as objects uh, or instruments that they have to manipulate in order to achieve their goals, you know, and they can imitate empathy, but they never feel anything. And that's the definition of psychopath. So the usual video game, RPG or whatever, shooter, it would stimulate this psychopathic way of treating other, like third parties, like the other, other NPCs, other characters. You have to use your whatever um, communication skills to whatever NPC to unlock some side quests or get some bonus points, things like that, mm -hmm. you know. So. In, in the world of Metro, NPCs are, in this regard, quite useless. But just as people around you are useless. Like when you walk to get a coffee, maybe you're, you're using a counterpart. But when you go with your friends you have a beer, you're not using them. You know, you're just having fun with them. You, you mm -hmm. enjoy the emotional connection. And uh, that's exactly what I try to, to do. To populate the world of Metro with very relatable, human-like characters that have stories to share. I think that's that is one of my favorite parts about Metro, the the entire Metro series, really. Uh, and and there's plenty of examples of it in Exodus. I, I did a review of Exodus for a website called DailyDot.com, and I, I was fascinated the entire way by how methodically paced and how comfortable it is to take its time. There's an entire like wedding sequence uh, where you can you know sing a few songs and like spend time with your wife uh, Anna, and I. I cannot fathom a 
like maybe a Western developed game like Call of Duty or Battlefield or something like that, uh, they have their quiet moments and they, they know how to kind of peak and valley their way through a narrative, but it's never at that level. And I think that that's what made me even though there's some level of jank in every game, it, it sometimes the, the controls don't always work as fluidly as you want, or like sometimes you get stuck on something. I don't care because I, I do genuinely feel for like the, the, uh, the, the soldiers that kind of tag along for the ride uh, in Exodus in any other game, they would have been nameless, faceless NPCs who are just generic white people you know, who will either take a bullet for you or like perform a function so you don't have to do it. And in this game, they get married and they like fall in love and they they have opinions and personalities and they do kind of grow. And I uh, that is probably my favorite part of Metro. Uh, and that was that, that was my, my that was my sphere of responsibility. So basically developing speak answering your, your question uh, my responsibility in Metro Exodus, since there was no literary base for it, was to ensure the overall integrity, mm-hmm. um, story-wise, like plot-wise, with other installments of, of the project, both in, in the books and the video games, making sure that Exodus is continuing the bigger saga of Metro. It's not just independent piece of crap that, that you know, stumbles somewhere there. No, it's, it's a direct continuation of the other things, of the other themes and topics and ideas of, of the saga. But also, uh, what I was very focused on is to make sure that Anna, Miller, um, and other Spartans feel completely human-like, that they are uh, not NPCs, that you care for them, you know, and that, that, that you, you really um, fall in love with your wife and you start hating her father because he's just such a stubborn old idiot and then uh, you, you probably discover him in, um, under another angle. And that, that Spartans that go with you on this train, the other uh, members of the same order, they become your comrades, really, mm-hmm. your friends. You know? and, and you discover that they have, just as I said, dreams and hopes and, and memories from the past and things they cannot get over. You know? And then... Everyone is like a living character, and this this journey on the train uh, from Moscow into nowhere, this endless romantic journey on the train, is, you 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 make it with people who you feel for, you know, with people basically. And that was something that um, the 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 four A team charged me with with doing. Kind of jumping off of that and, and just being able to build a real connection with these these you know video game characters, the one of the starkest differences between the book and the game is that in the game, Artyom is a is ninety percent of the time he is a silent protagonist. You do hear an actor voicing him during um, kind of in between chapter segments uh, and kind of load screens and whatnot, kind of relaying what's happened and like what his fears and such are, and those are really well done. But for ninety percent of the game, he is a silent protagonist. And was that a was that a choice kind of from four A games or like did you have thoughts on that? Because I always I'm always really curious why some developers choose to make their protagonists no, voice or not voice. No fucking idea. So they kind of yeah, we were sticking with it because uh, we started it's that way. So let's just keep it. But by but I understand from the reviews I've read, and of course I'm eagerly 
reading all the reviews, especially the evil reviews. <laughs> uh, and fuck you, evil reviewers. <laughs> I understand that the, the Metacritic could be five points higher should Artyom actually had a voice, you know? And I don't know why, um, this is the only probable choice that I disagree with developers on. I think that he, the, the, he should speak, you know, why not? You know, okay, let, let give him several options of what to say. I'm, I'm prepared personally to write all of them. I'll spend a month on that, but he'll fucking speak, you know? Like, I, you know, like I love the guys. I think they're totally brilliant. And um, I don't understand, actually, why this only choice that that cost them such a great disappointment in in the playing and and critical community was made no fucking idea you know like <laughs> I, I i understand how late that feels when your wife is talking to you telling her how her father <laughs> abused her when she was a kid and how he drove her mother into alcoholism and you later feel she like suicided. a dick <laughs> and you're like and you're like Whatever. Yeah, you you <laughs> feel like, like an insensitive you know, like, spouse a little bit. But. And you and you and you're like Beavis and Butthead. You're like, huh, huh. <laughs> like what? Does like you know? It doesn't make fucking sense. Yeah, whatever. So I I believe um, that in, in may, maybe I I'll, I'll get to convince them later that uh, this has to be fixed. You know, like I I think that the, the, it was the the, mo the mostly quoted from the Empire to Kotaku. That was the point that disappointed everybody. They were like, the story is kind of bad. The story is kind of cool, but it's kind of bad where because the dialogue stumbles because the protagonist is mute. Yeah. And like, fuckers, yeah. it's not the story, right? It's the, <laughs> the fact that they don't want to give him a voice. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Go read the books because in the books, he doesn't shut up. You know, like <laughs> he talks all the time. That's what he's doing. No, so, I... if, you miss, if you miss Archer's voice, Go and read the freaking books. You know, you'll, you'll be happy. You know, so uh, it's a non-ending monologue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm very excited to see that that aspect oh. of Artyom and, and maybe like li oh, live a little yeah. more vicariously through him after having read the book. So I'll toss this last question at you. Um, and and you know, I, I'm not here to like make you uh, you know talk trash at anybody. Although I, I expect that may not stop you. Uh, in an Are older Sapkowski and extortion. <laughs> God damn it, <laughs> the... <laughs> uh, Mr. Sapkowski so, and the so, yeah. extortion case. So, you know? <laughs> uh, so and Anders Edge Sapkowski, he's the author of the Witcher novels. He, in multiple interviews over the years, he's kind of infamously, infamously despised video games and the way that they've interacted with his franchise. Uh, or his universe of the Witcher, and it's it's to me it's always been a little strange because his books are really good. I love I've I've loved reading the Witcher novels, and they have a very humanist uh, kind of it, it is brutal, but there is a kindness and a warmth in them. But then you look at the author, and like he's he's a curmudgeonly old jerk. Uh, I I I do think he in the news a few months ago there was this. Uh, small controversy about he wanted uh, more comp more financial compensation because the game proved yeah proved to be way more popular than really I think even uh, CD Projekt Red uh, kind of anticipated and on one hand I totally understand that like you you did the one lump sum but like things have changed and it, it is a little uh, suspect but also you made that call and I and you know you chose to not involve yourself and like help build up this other leg of your universe so what are your thoughts on that and how do they relate to how you've uh, uh, engaged with 4a games and uh, the metro games 
Yeah, so, you know, like from the very beginning, uh, my financial appetites were far higher than Mr. Sapkowski. When the guys first came to me, I said, it's going to cost you a million dollars. And uh, back, at the, back at the time, it was pretty much my budget for 50 years of life. So uh, <laughs> they told me, you know what? Uh, no, we'll give you 10,000. I'm like, okay, 10,000 is good. <laughs> and I took it. And I, and I was super happy for years. And then, of course, as the, the franchise started to grow, um, we had chances to negotiate new fair deals for uh, new projects for, for, for new installments of the franchise. So I got, I, I'm happy. I'm happy uh, both like, you know, like on the, from you, on the financial compensation that I'm getting, I think it's fair. Um, and um, I, I don't like, I don't want to extort them for more. And also, also creatively, because they always given me an opportunity to voice my ideas, my concerns, my doubts, you know, and, and it's been a process of, ongoing, very close mutual collaboration, a lot of back and forth, you know. So regarding Mr. Sapkowski, I understand that he just didn't understand shit in the gaming industry. He was already too old. Mm -hmm. He was born too, too early for video games, actually. Mm -hmm. So by the moment when uh, the video games uh, became all the rage, uh, he didn't get it, you know. So he she sold it for a flat fee because he didn't believe in the guys. So he told them, just give him the money and get fuck out. And when it became super big, he got frustrated. Um, yeah, I think that's I, I'm going to issue um, an official apology to Mr. Sapkowski on my Instagram account. Um, when do you release this podcast? Uh, it'll be Monday, uh, the, this coming Monday, so the 25th. All right. So, yeah, yeah. So maybe this, sometimes next week I'm going to release an official apology to Mr. <laughs> Sapkowski on my Instagram. You know, uh, I'm trying to, I'll try to make a show out of it, of course. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm like, I was first sorry about him. Like, I felt sorry about him for missing this business opportunity. But then mm -hmm. this extortion tactic proved to be brilliant. And now we, we hear he has a settlement with uh, CD Projekt Red. Yeah. So I'm happy that he's going to buy himself another golden, I don't know, yacht. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, whatever it's, makes him happy. It seems like yeah. he's happy buying lots of beer uh, from, from everything. Yeah, I've yeah. Apparently, yeah. So, you know, whatever makes him happy. I, I believe that everybody has to be happy in this world. Yeah, no, and, and, that, <laughs> and that's why... Maybe it's, maybe it's the heritage of my um, um, childhood spent in the, in the communist country where we <laughs> believed that we're actually not going to dominate the fucking world and try to make everybody smiley and happy. Hey, you know. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Dimitri, thank you so much. This has been a really kind of fascinating and enlightening conversation. I'm so excited to kind of dive back into uh, more of the Metro books and maybe even some of the, the tertiary uh, other location Metro books. And uh, I, I feel like I've gained a new appreciation for the games and the, the universe that I'm kind of exploring through and it was already in love with. So Thank you for that. Thank you um, so much. Do you have uh, text was your most recent book. Um, that's not the Metro universe. That's kind of its own standalone thing. Um, but do you have any uh, ideas that you can talk about as far as the future of the Metro universe? Uh, so the future of Metro universe, the book, the book trilogy is over. I'm done with it. Yeah. Um, there is another novel translated into English called Future. Uh, maybe it's also on Amazon. I'm not sure. You need to go and check it. Uh, it's a world of people who live forever. They need genetically modified, so they don't get old and die. But they don't cannot have children, so they have either to have they can either have children or live forever. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that's it. Um, speaking of continuation of, so text is not translated to English yet, uh, to your question. Uh, speaking of uh, the Metro story, the bigger Metro saga, I don't think that I'm going to continue it um, in books. Um, if this is over, the story could potentially be continued in video games or on TV. So if anybody from Netflix is listening to this, yes, <laughs> we get forget, something for you. Forget the Witcher adaptation. Ooh. Henry Cavill looks like a like a like a palm, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, looking for something. Hypes. Looking for something. Yeah. <laughs> Dimitri, thank you so much. And folks, you can always find uh, a new episode of the 1099 every Monday here on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Dimitri, thank you. Thank you, man.